Hey everyone, Tatum here, and welcome to our podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to point out that while recording our first few episodes, we were still working out a few logistics, so please bear with us. One that you will quickly notice is that as you can hear, I now have a better mic than I did when we recorded our Inception episode, so going forward, you should have much better audio quality. Additionally, as it took us a few episodes to figure out the specifics of our format, you will find that our first three episodes include step-by-step plot summaries that we do eliminate by episode four. Anyway, enough about all of that boring shenanigans. We thank you for your patience as we start this super fun project, and we are so happy to have you on this journey with us. So, without further ado, let's get started. You're waiting for a train. A train that'll take you far away. You know where you hope this train will take you, but you can't know for sure. But it doesn't matter. How can it not matter? You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. (laughs) Welcome to the Your Pick Movie Podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We're two friends who love the movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. So, this is the first episode of this podcast, and I thought... Uh, So I thought we'd take a couple of minutes to just introduce ourselves a little bit and talk about our relationship to um, movies. So I'm Geneva. I grew up in a family where movies are definitely a big pastime. Um, I have an uncle who loves old film and has this like massive old DVD collection and Um, He introduced me to a lot of stuff when I was growing up. So I've kind of just always been kind of an old movie buff. Um, You know, I started getting in college. I started getting more into film on my own. I was renting a lot of movies, trying to start filling, you know, getting really serious about filling in gaps in my, um, you know, in what I'd watched and and really thinking critically about film. Um, I started taking screenwriting classes and filmmaking classes, things like that. and uh, after college, I went to Los Angeles and I, I interned out in Los Angeles for a couple of um, sort of production and talent management companies um, for several months. Um, so that was uh, fascinating because I was just basically reading scripts the entire time um, and just, you know, observing how things work, things like that. Um so yeah, um, since then I haven't I've not been working in the film industry, but I've just continued to watch a lot of films, read a lot about um, film criticism in particular. That's kind of an, an area that I'm really fascinated by. I really love um, analyzing and thinking deeply about film. Um, I actually just finished up a master's degree um, in theology and the arts with a, a research focus on film. So um, I was reading a lot of film criticism, um, a lot of kind of academic work about film studies and uh, in the process of writing my dissertation for that. So yeah, that's uh, that's me, <laughs> me and the movies. Tatum, what about you? 
Yeah, so I, um, I've kind of always loved movies as long as I can remember. Um, I grew up in a family where we always had something on, on the TV or music or something. We always loved having stimulation in the house. And uh, actually, my, my dad showed me a lot of movies when I was younger. And um, I think the love of film was kind of always in me, but I didn't fully... I don't know, just go all in with it until I was in my late teens and college years. Um, I always, I made movies all the time with my neighbors growing up. I wanted to, I was interested in claymation and like behind the scenes theater stuff. And then in college, I actually um, studied film. Uh, and then I was able to make, start learning the process of studying films and how they're made and why they're shot that way, as well as studying and writing film criticism. And then when I graduated college, I started working in the film industry. Um, I've worked in lots of different roles. I started as a carpenter, and then from there I've done mostly props and set dressing. Um, I'm sure I will explain those things to people as time goes on, because a lot of people don't know what set dressing is, but that's fine. Um, and yeah, I also, uh, I'm a screenwriter, director. I've written, um, some shorts. I wrote a feature last year. I made, uh, and finished a short a few years back. And yeah, so that's kind of my relationship to film. Uh, I watch so many movies all the time. Um, I, my, the type of films that I watch, the genre that I typically gravitate towards is different from Geneva's most of the time. Um, which is really fun for this podcast. I think it's going to be interesting as we share films with each other that are very different. And sometimes I like films that Geneva does not like and <laughs> vice versa, but we always love to talk about it. Um, so that's, that's why we're here. Um, I, yeah, our friendship kind of started uh, back a few years ago and we kind of met each other. And I think, I think I invited you to see a movie, Geneva. I think we went to go see... Was it Manchester by the Sea? I don't remember. But I think I invited you to go see. We'll be talking about that movie at some point. Um, yeah, we should try and remember what it was. What was the first movie we watched together? Because I, I don't I remember think it was we, Manchester by the Sea. I don't remember. It was Which definitely like, that year. So it was. Yeah. There was it's like, hey, <laughs> let's become friends and watch one of the most like <laughs> upsetting <laughs> movies to ever exist. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so we saw that. And then I think we both kind of realized, whoa, I found another person that is as crazy about movies as I am. I've never experienced this with anyone else before. <laughs> and then from there, we just, I mean, we're really great friends. And a lot of our, not a, not like all of it, but a lot of our time in our friendship is spent talking about movies. So we were like, hey, let's just do this in more of a quote unquote formal space even though this is not formal at all, but you know, we're having fun and um, we're so glad everyone's here with us. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, you sort of said this already, but one of the things I love most about our, our friendship as it relates to movies is the fact that we are so different in our tastes and that we've been able to share with each other a lot of different things where we can have really great conversations, even if, you know, one of us watches a movie and it's like, this is the most moving thing I've ever seen in my life. And it just impacted me deeply. And the other person says, yeah, I was fine. <laughs> but I always love hearing what Tatum has to say about a movie, even if it isn't something that, you know, I really thought about when I was watching it, hearing what moved her about it um, causes me to look then at the movie differently and to look just more, 
more deeply at the world and how different people are and how differently people receive things and come to appreciate, you know, the the differences in in taste and the differences in reception and how, you know, different things can really help people and cause them to grow and cause them to look at the world differently. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So I agree. Yeah, that's that's why we have this podcast, because we love, I guess, uniting with other people's perspectives and hearing, I don't know, just like sharing in their experience, even if we might not have had the same relationship with it. Um, And just to kind of expound on something I didn't, I guess, say before. But yeah, so Geneva kind of highlighted her her taste that she tends towards most of the time, which is a lot of classic films. What would you say, Geneva, like yeah. pre-1970s yeah. or 1960s? I mean, the 1940s <laughs> are kind of my my ideal <laughs> decade for film. Yeah, like she loves old movies and, and musicals, Gene Kelly, she's, you know, Jimmy Stewart, all that stuff. And then I'm kind of post-1980s. Um, I... Yeah, I'm very much so into. I mean, I'm into old stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've to be clear, we both, both love things all the board. movies and um, have watched all movies yeah, of all times. All movies <laughs> of all but... times. <laughs> but I tend to gravitate towards a lot more of the the more modern indie films, um, foreign films, uh, and yeah, because I think growing up mixed, my dad kind of exposed me to African American cinema and things like that. So I I think just from a ground level growing up, I was already like, okay, all these different types of things, um, not to like diminish Geneva's taste or experience or whatever. Um, and, but, and I'm, I'm also bilingual. I also speak Spanish. So, so I'm kind of like foreign language, different countries, um, and post 1980s type of thing. So as this podcast goes on, as Geneva and I both choose movies to talk about each week, you'll find a lot of Geneva's choices being more classic films and then mine being more um, for lack of a better word, modern. Uh, but like yeah, we said, we yeah. both kind of watch everything. Yeah. So, and I also, yeah. um, just to add to, to establish expectations up front, I feel like I also watch a bit more widely than you in the sense that I watch a lot more movies that are not good oh, or yes. are more like <laughs> mainstream. I love rom-coms. <laughs> I love a good action movie, a good superhero movie, which like you like specific instances of them too, but they're not your go-to's they're not as common, I think, in your watching rotation as they are in mine. Yeah, I, maybe Geneva can attest to this. I've gotten a lot more open-minded over time, but I'm definitely, I'm more of a snob than than Geneva is. Um, And I say that with the highest of praise. I wish I wasn't as much of a snob as I am. Uh, But yeah, I mean, but you know, I'm not rude about it. At least I don't think I is. But yeah, I definitely am a lot Mm -hmm. less... I'm a lot less tolerant <laughs> of movies that are not like, I, I'm just going to stop there. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. You you guys, you guys will learn as we move forward. Yeah. You'll yeah. learn no, our it's personalities. All good. It's all good. Yes. You know, we all have different tastes and we all have different things to learn. And you know, that's, that's why we do this. And that's why we love, we love uh, movies and we love talking about them. All right. So today on the show for our very first episode, we're going to start off by discussing Inception. Yes. Bah, bah. <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> All right. Inception is a 2010 sci-fi action film directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Marianne Cotillard, Ken Watanabe, among others. I'm sure that 
most of you who are listening to this will have you have watched Inception at some point in your lives. It was a massive hit when it first came out. One of the reasons that we picked this picked this movie to start with is because this is a movie that we both really, really love and have a lot of appreciation for. So Tatum, why don't you start us off by talking about when did you first see Inception and what is your general relationship with it? Yeah, so I first saw, so I saw this movie when it first came out in 2010. And let's just say that in my mind, there are few films that I have very specific recollections of what the movie going experience was like. I can still remember it. I can still feel it. Inception is one of those movies. I think I saw it three times in theaters. And then I saw it again when it was re-released two years ago. Um, in theaters. So (laughs) needless to say, I love this movie. Um, I remember when I first saw it in theaters, I had never experienced suspense (laughs) in, in such a huge way. Like I did in Inception, just like, I thought that the movie was suspenseful, but then (laughs) once the van fell off the bridge and then they keep like the editing of it, the way that they cut back and forth at certain moments of to remind you that the van is falling. Ugh, the way that this movie plays with time, because the movie is about time, right? Even the structure of the movie itself reflects time, how it's edited, and um, it, it has the ability to make such a short sequence of time as small as five seconds and make it 30 minutes. And I just love, I really admire the editing and and how it just, just plays with that idea. Um, And so, yeah, the movie's great. I think watching it again this time, I really was impacted by the acting. I think in the past, I've been so caught up in the spectacle and just how freaking cool (laughs) the movie is. But this time watching it again and actually having a notebook next to me and writing things down, I was like, wow, the acting performances in this movie are really great. And shout out to the casting director. I should probably look up who he or she is, but they did a really great job. Um, So yeah, I'm going to try not to ramble because we've got plenty more time to talk about this. Um, But yes, needless to say, I love this movie. The first time I saw it, I fell in love with it. I was on the edge of my freaking seat the entire time. I was like, I have never seen anything like this before. This is so incredible. Um, And I don't know if I've ever seen anything that mentally intrigues me in the same way that this movie does since this movie. Maybe that's not true, but anyway. Um, Yeah, I love this movie. I'm really glad that Geneva picked it for number one, or at least our first episode. Um, It was on my list to talk about at some point, but Geneva was like, hey, let's start with this one. And I was like... Sweet. Sounds amazing to me. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you said, you know, I would heartily agree <laughs> agree with because that was my experience with it. Inception is actually, it came out the the year that I first went away to college. And so I actually have a very strong association with seeing it in the movie theater in my college town with a whole bunch of, you know, new people that I had just, <laughs> I had just met. And it absolutely just blowing my mind. And going away to college was kind of a thing that was pretty pivotal in my sort of relationship with movies in the sense that it was now, you know, being away from family, now I had more freedom to choose the the things that I wanted to watch and to really make active choices to seek out things. And that's 
So 2010 was kind of the year that I was starting to really get into film and get into following awards and get into, let me look up things, you know, fill in gaps in my knowledge, finally go and watch things that I hadn't had a chance to watch before. And Inception, yeah, just absolutely blew my mind in what it could do, the way it achieved all of its ends. It was a movie that I, you know, I saw it with a lot of friends and we were just kind of talking about it for weeks afterward. I saw it multiple times. Um, And then since then, I mean, I I think I had seen, I think I had only seen Batman Begins of Christopher Nolan's filmography prior to that, yet seen The Dark Knight. Um, Oh, but since then, I've become a big fan of, of Christopher Nolan. And so that it's also a movie that kind of sparked his place in my awareness and kind of made him stand out to me. And it is really funny just going through it, I guess, 12 years now after it first premiered, <clears throat> having now seen the rest of his filmography, you know, he is such a consistent director in the things that he is interested in and the, th- the themes that keep emerging throughout his work, which I find really fascinating. Lots dead of dead wives. wives which is we could talk about. <laughs> Lots of dead wives. Um, but his, yeah, his, like you were saying, Tatum, his relationship with time and the idea of time compression and time dilation is so fascinating. One thing I think that is really fascinating about his filmography in general, but I think Inception is kind of a really good encapsulation of this. Like it is, it just has so many of the the sort of themes and strengths and weaknesses in his work are all kind of tied up in Inception. You know, it's, it's one of those movies that you can just look at and be like, this is kind of the director (laughs) and his interests summed up in one. Um, But is that the idea of dreaming and the, the way that dreaming is represented find is so fascinating you know, I was looking up critical, other critical perspectives from the time and then kind of more recent retrospective lookbacks. And a lot of people comment on the, the the fact that this movie is entirely about dreaming, and yet it's a very sort of sterile in the way that it looks and is presented. And there's a lot of surreal imagery in the sense of, you know, cities folding in on themselves and, you know, stairs that lead to nowhere and those kind of really cool inventive things. But there's not a whole lot of, you know, it's it's a very intellectually charged movie, which is not to say, you know, I, I think we can talk about kind of the the philosophical ideas that are at work behind it and the degree to which, you know, they have a whole lot of depth or nuance. But it is a movie that really and I think Christopher Nolan, as a director, you really approach him in a sort of a sense of intellectual engagement, which is something that I really connect with about him. And there is emotion that comes through. I actually find this to be a deeply emotional movie, but it is very much emotion that's accessed through appreciation for the sort of the filmmaking appreciation for the use of these kind of heady concepts of timelines and actions on one level being reflected on another level and, you know, consciousness versus subconsciousness, these sort of, well, things that are, are, are more, you approach them, you know, with thought, you know, enga- you engage them with thought rather than just sort of approaching them first through the, the heart or through the instinct. And I find that really fascinating about him. And I think it's, for my personality, it really, <laughs> it really works. It really allows me to connect with them. Although I understand that for some people, it might make it a bit more difficult to connect with. I think a lot of people say that Christopher Nolan's movies are very, they like he doesn't know how to experience emotion. He just talks about it. And I can see that perspective, but I also disagree. I think that 
I think that he approaches emotion, but just in a very mm-hmm. intellectual sort of way. Like you said, Geneva, for example, the movie Interstellar, but this mm-hmm. is not a review of Interstellar, so I'll just like for another day quickly reference it. But there are some sequences in that movie that are highly, highly emotional, but at least for me, but because it's caught up in this scientific philosophical type of thing, it's just a different approach. And actually this time watching Inception, I actually had a completely different takeaway from this movie than I have in the past. Cause I think in the past I have kind of thought, Oh yeah, it's about dreams and the complexity and the philosophy of <laughs> Billy Eilish. <laughs> like when we fall asleep, where do we go? But Actually, this time around watching it, I was fascinated. I was like, this is actually Mm. ultimately a movie about trauma. I was going to say Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Dom Cobb, stupid name, by the way. (laughs) Dom Cobb, he is someone who not only has his wife died, but also you could make the argument that he killed her because he's the one who planted the idea in his wife's mind. And I think... In reality, if that were possible, the person who have who has lived through that and did that to their spouse, they would probably be extremely traumatized by that. And no matter how much they might look okay on the outside, their subconscious is probably reeling with the reality of what they did, what their spouse did, what they've been through. And because this whole movie is diving into his subconscious or him bringing his subconscious into someone else's, I ultimately, this time watching it, was like, this is a really fascinating study on trauma, how it affects our brains, and what the effect of that would be if if we actually saw everybody's traumas and how it's impacting them without them being able to hide it. Because the subconscious, right, you can't control it they say that's literally a quote in the movie like Mm. it's my subconscious i can't control it so i found i found that to be really fascinating and i think that that's ultimately a very emotional type of subject matter i killed my wife and how is that affecting me and how i approach the world and how i live my life so i don't know it hit me different this time It, it did feel like more of an emotional experience for me than it's been than it had been in the past. So fascinating. So, oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, because I one thing that I, I've always found very interesting about this movie is I I care very deeply about whether or not Cobb and the gang <laughs> uh, pull off the heist. And I'm always, you know, I'm on, on the edge of my seat as the, the van is falling into the water and they're trying to figure out how they can mm-hmm. restart the kicks and get everyone back to the surface in time. But I don't find myself caring as, not caring as much, but... I, the the idea of him getting back to his children is kind of more remote to me, if that makes sense. Like, I, I feel like I engage with it as sort of a plot device much more than I engage with the emotional aspect. But where the emotions really hit for me is more the Fisher storyline, which the more I watch the movie, the more I love seeing those two as kind of a, kind of a parallel to each other. I, I actually think... Fisher has a really interesting arc in the movie that runs parallel to Cobb. And I find it very moving seeing, tracking his relationship to his father, who has been this kind of emotionally negligent force in his life, you know, where he sort of, he loves his father and yet he feels like he can never live up to him. He's kind of resigned himself to always feeling like he has not done enough, always feeling like his father is never going to to love him. 
And what the team is doing is suggesting this idea that you can, which actually watching it now, having, having now finally seen Memento only a few months ago for the first time, they both are very thematically similar in this idea of you having the power to kind of craft your own reality and, and base the purpose of your life on this, you know, crafting meaning out of the, that is not necessarily tied to reality. And I don't say that as a positive way. I think one of the fascinating things about Inception is Cobb gets to the end and he sets the top spinning and he goes to see his children and he turns away. He doesn't care yet anymore whether the top continues spinning or whether it stops. You know, he is, he's achieved his ends and he doesn't ultimately care whether or not he's in a dream. But that does raise the question of, is that a good thing? And there's that question with Fisher of, you know, he has finally achieved this emotional catharsis. He has finally come to a place where he can rewrite his relationship with his father so that his father did ultimately love him. And this choice that he's making, the choice that he's been manipulated by the team to make, is to move forward with this positive understanding and to be his own man and to believe that his father did indeed love him. But we don't know that he did. You know, the information that we have at our disposal is not is not really positive toward that. And so there it just it does leave this really fascinating question of is it better to just kind of create your own sense of reality and start to live out of that? Or is it better to be insisting for reality as it is? Does that make sense? Yeah. Why don't we start going through the plot a little bit? And I was trying to write up a summary of the plot, and it's just immensely complicated. Because <laughs> one of this, the things that is so amazing about this movie, as you pointed out, Tatum, is the way it's edited. And the writing as well, just the two of those things working in tandem. Like As I was rewatching it, I was so struck and impressed by how amazingly it is written and then edited to create these incredible sequences where five different things are happening all at the same time. And it's very difficult to, you get all the sense of what's happening and yet it's very difficult to actually write down a linear plot summary, but I uh, have done my best. So, all right. So the movie starts <laughs> with some amazing Hans Zimmer bombs. <laughs> I, Geneva, yes. the very first thing that I wrote down was blah, blah, before <laughs> the movie even starts. Literally yep. before you Set see, tone early. before you see anything, it's just already Hans Zimmer coming in and being like, all right, ultimately, I know Christopher Nolan is the director, but I own this film. <laughs> yes, he absolutely does. And this score was just it. I feel like it it had an impact on action movies for the next, especially trailer music for the next 10 plus years. I also, I mentioned before that this movie was around the time I started getting really into the Oscars. The very first Oscars that I remember ever watching with a very specific, like, I want this thing to win was watching the 2011 Oscars feeling like there would be no justice in the world if the Inception score did not win, which it did not. And <laughs> I've had the same sort of hey. antagonistic and yet needy relationship <laughs> to the Oscars ever since. Hey, at least you knew what you were getting yes, into yes, right I, off the bat. I, my expectations were set low and have consistently Wait, been what? lowered. 
What won that year? Uh, it was uh, the social network. How did, which, how did this not the win? The social network actually does have a really oh. excellent score. It's not like it was a undeserving win. Yeah, that's but it's true. just with the, especially with the knowledge, the hindsight of how influential the Inception score would be. You know, it's it's hard to believe that it didn't win. Yeah, I'm shocked yeah. by that. Yep. Anyway, okay. So yes, we we start with the score. Leonardo DiCaprio as Dom Cobb washes up on a beach. He's taken to this really beautiful sort of Japanese style home. Everything is kind of dark wood and gold. Everyone is very elegant, which is sort of a, a theme throughout the movie, the visuals. He meets Saito, who is played by Ken Watanabe, but who is aged. He looks like he's about 100 or so. And can I just mm-hmm. say that some characters in this movie call him Saito and some call him Sato, and that really bothers me. <laughs> Why? Like, was Christopher Nolan on set? Was he, was Christopher Nolan specifically on set? Like, I want you to say it this way and I want you to say it this way. Or did he not notice? Did he not care? <laughs> they forgot to have well, an all-cast meeting on here? or all-cast meeting um, at the beginning of production to settle it. Although, to be honest, I feel like that's kind of consistent with reality, that if there's a a name that is ever so slightly unfamiliar to an English speaker, you'll find every variation of pronunciation on the planet. Yeah. At least they didn't call him like Steve or something. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> Bad joke. All right. Um, so Saito sees this little metallic top that Cobb had in his pocket, and he starts saying these cryptic things about something I, I remember from a half, you know, a half-remembered dream. And then we cut... And we're in the same location, but it seems to be sometime earlier. So Cobb and Arthur, who's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, they are attempting to pull off a robbery on Saito's house. So Saito now, much younger. And they're attempting to steal some files. But Cobb um, is betrayed by this mysterious woman named Mal, who seems to know Cobb from the past. Cobb manages to get the files, but he opens up the the folder and all the information is redacted. And so everything that he got was use- is totally useless. At the same time, the sequence starts to be intercut with all of these shots of the characters in a different location. They're in this dingy apartment. There's this violent mob going on outside the window. And we start to realize that Cobb, Arthur, and Saito are all in this apartment and they're all dreaming. And the heist is the dream. And what Cobb and Arthur are trying to do is to steal information from Saito's mind. So Saito wakes up in the apartment. He tells Cobb and Arthur they failed. But then we see the scene intercut with shots of the characters in yet another location, which is a high-speed train. Saito realizes that Cobb actually layered a dream within a dream, and he's really impressed at this. Then in the real world, Cobb and Arthur, they wake up on the train, they end the dream, and they escape. So in this, I, I paused on my recent rewatch of this at this point. This is about 15 minutes into the movie. The movie's about two and a half hours long. Um, it's quite long, although it doesn't feel that long. And so 15 minutes in, again, with the how amazingly this movie is written and structured, we have basically laid out the entirety of everything that you need to know about the existence of shared dreaming, the concept of extraction, the way that the, the existence of totems, the way that dreams can be layered within one another, the idea of kicks, like all of this crucial information that we're going to need to know to understand the rest of the movie has been laid out 
it's all going to be explained in more detail later. But when once it's explained, we're going to know what they're talking about because we've all seen it in action. And I just think that's such great, great screenwriting. Like, I think you can have quibbles with aspects of the writing in this movie, you know, specific characterizations, lines of dialogue, things like that. But the way that this movie is structured, I think it takes a lot of talent to lay things out as cleanly. And for something that is as exposition heavy as this movie is, this movie is like 75% exposition. They do such a good job of laying everything out very naturally, where you're just imbibing all of this information and you're discovering it and it feels very fun. You know, it doesn't feel like you're sitting down for a lesson. You're you're in it, but you're also learning at the same time. So <laughs> Geneva, I literally agree with everything <laughs> that you just said. Um, yeah, I find that a lot of people, they complain about Christopher Nolan and how his writing is very expositional. And I do see that in a lot of his movies, including this one. But I think in Inception, it's one of his best instances of doing that. Because yes, it's very expositional, but it's done in a way that to me feels very natural. And I don't feel like I'm sitting in a lecture hall listening to someone be like, okay, here's the concept of time and how it works. From the very beginning, I'm not going to repeat everything Geneva said that Geneva said, but it establishes everything, but in such an, a nail-biting, entertaining way. And it makes you want more of like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Who's this character? What are they doing? Why were they old and now they're young? So many things are introduced right off the bat. And I think that, like Geneva said, it's really a sign of excellent screenwriting, in my opinion, because screenwriting is quite difficult. <laughs> and writing something that from the very beginning gets your attention and makes you want to keep reading or watching, but at the same time explains what you need to know is so immensely hard to do. Like you watch it and it seems simple, but when you sit down to try and write something, it's not easy. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I made a note on that as well. I really, really admire it. Um, and then I also had to comment on Marion Cotillard's dress in the opening sequence i marion cotillard is stunning in anything that she does or wears and also she is not defined by her beauty she is her own person all of those things but also she looks fabulous <laughs> in this form-fitting sparkly yet dark sleek ugh, <laughs> it's it's incredible and i love it and it stood out to me so much that i was like i have to comment on this I feel like it was a dress that was custom made for her. It has to be. She looks like she's poured into it. And actually, I'm so glad she said that because that brings up a point that I literally wrote down in my notes, which is everyone in this movie is so freaking hot. <laughs> and it's kind of insane. Yeah. Like when I first watched this movie, it's not it fair. sparked, you know, I was 18. I was, I was just <laughs> entering college, sparked a massive, massive crush on Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then rewatching it 10 years later, I'm just like, wow, there's just everyone, everyone in this movie. So hot. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, all the suits and formal wear. I, yeah, you never see people dress like that anymore. So it's yeah. refreshing. Well, and again, I, um, I really appreciate We all know Christopher that. Nolan loves a good suit. Again, I really appreciate the fact that for Christopher Nolan, like exploring your dreams means everyone is in an immaculately tailored business suit, just like walking around yes. in hallways, you know? 
even if they're in Mombasa, they're still like, <laughs> like not even trying to blend into the corner oh at all. Yeah. No. Um, and then also, I know I kind of referenced this before, but I need to just get it out because I think this is something that I have thought about even ever since the first time I saw this movie. What the F is up with these names? I cannot. Dom Cobb is so Dom weird. Is and then Maul. Dom Cobb is terrible. Maul is weird. I don't, I just, I don't understand why you have someone like Arthur and then, you know, you have all these normal names and then let's throw in like Ariadne. And I'm like, wh- why? I don't. Maybe there are French names that I'm just not familiar with, but also Ariadne has an American accent, as does Dom Cobb. So why would they? So I just don't. And so does, um, why am I forgetting his name right now? Um, Michael Caine, who's the father. Miles, like his name is. They're not. They talk like they're. Wait, hold on a second. Wait a minute. Michael Caine is British. And then his son, Dom Cobb, is I always, not? Okay. Wait, we don't have time to get into the complicated family dynamics, but I have always wondered this because I actually always assumed Michael Caine was Marianne Cotillard's father. But if that's the case, why is he British? Why was she French? And why are his Dom's kids living in the United States when Miles apparently sees them regularly? It's very confusing. (laughs) I said this before earlier. I'm sure we'll get into it a little later, but... This movie, as much as I love it, and I do love it, I absolutely love this movie. It's, just to throw this out there, it is my favorite Nolan film. Judge me all you want. It's my favorite Nolan film. It's a good choice. Um, not by much, though, because there are definitely close seconds and thirds. But if you look too closely at this, in my notes, I wrote down, like, four very extreme plot holes that basically make this entire movie fall <laughs> apart, if you think about that. <laughs> so it's like... Don't look too closely at mm-hmm. this, but also if you do, it doesn't matter because the movie is just so damn good. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every time I watch it, I'm impressed anew about how this movie is just so, the the balance is just so perfect. And it's so like a, I mean, I feel like House of Cards is often used as a pejorative, but it's so precise precisely Mm -hmm. engineered in the sense that you tip over one thing and the whole thing falls apart, but you don't, the thing isn't falling apart. It works, you know, it somehow works despite the fact that it shouldn't. And I feel like too, there's a little bit of a, not a cop out, but like a pass that you can give it, which I'd like to talk about more later. We don't need to get into this now, but with the ending, there is that idea of, you know, there are a lot of things about this movie that don't really make sense. But does that matter? Because it's possible the whole thing is just Dom's, Dom Cobb's dream. So, you know, if for, at the very least, you can always kind of, you know, explain things away that way. Uh, okay, so we discovered that Cobb is a wanted man in the United States. Uh, we don't yet know why, but he's unable to go home and see his children, which he really wants to do. Saito finds him and Arthur and he makes them a deal. He says he can get the charges against Cobb to go away if Cobb can implant an idea into the mind of Robert Fisher, played by Killian Murphy, who is the son of Saito's main business competitor. So what Saito wants is for Fisher to break up his company after his father, Maurice Fisher, has died. This is called inception, the idea of implanting an idea as opposed to extracting information from someone's mind. So Arthur thinks that inception is impossible But Cobb says that it can be done because he's actually done it before. 
Um, any anything on that? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> Cut out the ass. <laughs> okay, great. All right. So Cobb and Arthur begin to prepare for the mission. So to design the world of the dream, Cobb recruits an architecture student named Ariadne, played by Elliot Page, and he teaches her the rules of shared dreaming. The team also includes Saito Eames, who's played by Tom Hardy, who's a forger who can ex- impersonate specific characters, and Yusef, played by uh, Dilip Rao, who is a chemist who designs a sedative that allows them to enter into multiple dream layers. Together, the team studies the complicated relationship between Fisher and his father, and they decide to use a three-level dream that will give Fisher the idea that breaking up his father's company is a positive mood move that shows that he's ready to become his own person. Fisher's father dies. The team plans for the mission to take place on a long-haul flight from Sydney to Los Angeles. Sprinkled all, all throughout this plot, we learn more about Cobb's relationship with Maul and why he can't return to the United States. So the two of them were experimenting with dream sharing, and they accidentally spent 50 years in limbo, where Mal eventually lost track of reality. Cobb performed Inception in order to destabilize her sense of reality and convince her to wake up. However, he didn't realize that after waking up, Mal would continue to think that she was still dreaming, and so she ends up committing suicide, thinking that that was going to wake her up. And she tries to force Cobb to join her by framing him for her murder. So Cobb had to flee the United States, and he's been trying to get back to his kids ever since. I think we should also note that um, the reason that Cobb takes on this job is because this is his only way to get back to his kids. Saito offered, if you can plant this idea in Fisher's mind and it works, then I can make one phone call from the plane and (laughs) you will have no problem getting through immigration. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Easy as pie, which, you know, would it actually work that way? Does it matter if it would not work that way? Um, Hey, you know how those high power phone calls to the right person work? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So can I just jump in and say a few things here? So I think, So I wrote down that the whole, so the whole warehouse that the entire prepping for the mission happens in, I was looking at that warehouse and I was like, that warehouse is a set dressing nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) I have had to dress. I actually just recently did on a movie a few weeks ago. Um, We had to go into a warehouse that looks just like this because they were planning a mission. And in my mind, I'm like, why does every movie where they're planning a mission happen in a dang warehouse? Whatever. Much more comfortable spaces to to rent. Yeah. But like we were literally dressing a very similar set. Like it had a whiteboard and they were writing plans, sitting in chairs, blah, 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 planning a heist. And so, but watching this, I was like, I have prepped these warehouses before. This is a nightmare because I guarantee you this is a really, really old warehouse that's been untouched for decades. And the set deck crew has to go in, sweep up decades worth of like old metal pieces and shavings and like wood, blah, 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 sweep all that stuff up while they're choking on it. (laughs) And then bring in all of these big shelves and old heavy things. And then there were all of these newspapers plastered up against the windows. And I was like... This set looks really cool, but also this would have been like the worst, not the worst, but it would not have been a fun set to prep as a set dresser. So 
that was just a thought that I had while watching so that. <laughs> I love hearing uh, Tatum's set dressing corner. I hope this becomes a, a regular installment. And then also, I have a very strong feeling about this. What happened to Tom Hardy? I feel like Tom Hardy had this whole, what was it, five-year period maybe, where he was in TV shows, movies, he had all of this acclaim, really talented, nominated for Oscars, blah, 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 Emmys, all these different things. I don't know if he was nominated for Emmys, but he was in a show that was. Anyway, and now it's like, so you're just doing freaking Venom movies? What what happens? Because I think, like I said in the beginning, all of the acting in this movie I'm actually quite impressed with. But I honestly think that I'm most impressed with Tom Hardy's performance. I totally believe him as this character of Eames. I love his swag, his style, his attitude. He's also the best at what he does as a forger. I love his humor. It's a star-making performance. Like I, yes. I'm sure there are people who are more into movies at the time who knew who he was already, but... That was that movie is the first time that I had certainly ever heard of Tom Hardy. And I think that was kind of his introduction for a lot of people. And watching it again, you know, years later, the dynamic between him and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, that's sort of aggressive and yet flirty. It's just it's so good. Their 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 chemistry is so good. I can just imagine the, the hundreds and hundreds of fan fictions that that dynamic probably spawned, which I'm sure exists on the Internet Unlike the ridiculously forced, quote-unquote, chemistry or lack thereof between Joseph Gordon-Levitt and, <laughs> at the time, Ellen Page, now Elliot Page, don't force this if it's not working. Get rid of that and just dive into the chemistry that exists between these two characters where it's just naturally flowing, which is... Not me to say, like, it is very possible for men to be friends and have this type of relationship and, like, have it not be romantic at all. But putting this relationship up against the one in this movie that is supposed to be romantic, it just, I don't know. It, it's so, it's so odd to me. The, if the romance, to the extent that it is there, is so... I mean, I, I kind of appreciate that it is so dialed back and bare bones that you can basically just ignore it and won't change anything. <laughs> so it doesn't bother me too much, but um, yeah, chemistry is not not there. I was just going to comment on how much I love the sequence of, I mean, this entire section, you know, it's just, it is so hard to talk about because it is just an hour or more of exposition mixed with preparation. You know, it's, there's just all of these little individual moments. It's kind of hard to talk about it linearly, but I love so much the way that Ariadne forms this. I think there are issues with Ariadne as a character. I mean, there isn't really a whole lot of character there, but as a sort of audience surrogate introducing us to this world, her interactions with Cobb and with the, the rest of the team work really well. And I love in particular so much <laughs> the, uh, the sequence with her and Cobb when, when she's first entering the dream world, you know, when Paris starts exploding around them and the city starts folding in on itself. And it's something that I think we've kind of seen now in several movies since then, but just thinking about how, cool and uh unique and new that was at the time and it's just it's such an amazing image that is 
you know, it's just universal. You just, you understand it. You're awed by it. You know, seeing it in a theater when it's huge, you just, it's so visually inventive. It's so playful. You know, one of the things that's underrated about this movie is like, and I think about Christopher Nolan's filmography in general is, you know, he's generally regarded as someone who takes himself very seriously, which he definitely does. A lot of seriousness in his movies. There's also a lot of fun. You know, this movie is just fun. You know, it's long, but it just flies by because you're just enjoying the heck out of the ride. You're enjoying all the interactions with the characters. You're enjoying learning all of these things. You get this chance. There's to- literally a scene with someone fighting in a hallway while they're floating and they're fitting around. If that's not fun, then I don't yeah. know what is. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it just, you know, this idea and they, they talk about this, you know, Ariadne at first is like, this seems dangerous. I'm not, Cobb is clearly unstable. I'm not crazy about this and she quits but Cobb is like she'll be back and she is and it's because they say it's that idea of pure creation you know Cobb says reality is not going to be enough for her and can I just say real quick that was one thing that annoyed me in the in the screenwriting the fact that like she comes back and Arthur's like there's just nothing like it and then her response is it's just your creation And I'm like, that is the laziest sentence ever. And she, Elliot tried to, tried to deliver that in a realistic way, but it just comes, it just falls so flat because it's just not a good, it's not a good line. (laughs) It's not a great line, but it's actually funny that you say that because I had marked that out in my notes where I'm like, I think this, even if the line itself is not great, I think the concept is really fascinating in that sort of, you know, this idea of what do we love about the idea of dreams? It's that idea of endless possibility. You know, that's what's so attractive and so seductive about it to Cobb, to Maul prior to her, her death. You know, it leads these people into these, these alternate realities where they can create the world around them to be whatever it can be. And people get sucked into it. You know, people choose to voluntarily give up actual reality in order to stay within this realm. And I think that's just a fascinating concept. And the movie doesn't really interrogate too much the dark side of it, but it's definitely there. So yeah, I I was very struck by that line, even if it's not necessarily like great dialogue. Yeah, I think the concept is great. I just think the, the, line, the line itself is not the best written um so okay i have a few more thoughts about this section before we dive into part two so for the heist prep still kind of in that zone of things i have a couple thoughts first one is i don't and this confused me when i first watch it and it still confuses me now i don't understand why mal is written to be such a scary character as Ariadne is starting to go into Cobb's dreams and learn more about who he is, who she is, there's literally a sequence where she walks into the into the hotel room and Maul is sitting there and she turns her head and there's like a bomb, like a horror, like a horror sound. Movie villain. Yeah, and then Maul runs up to the elevator, is shaking it and looks up. She's a possessed. And I just find it to be so odd because the movie... I feel like the catharsis of the movie for Cobb's character would be so much better if we felt more of the love that had existed between him and Maul before she passed away. But instead of that, a lot of the times that we see her, she's portrayed as this. And and I understand that, okay, 
it's a project his projection of her and because of the subconscious she's got a different character from the reality of who she was i get that but why do we have to take this extra step and kind of make her like a horror villain Mm -hmm. i just that's just an odd choice to me and it's always been kind of weird and it feels out of place and over the top in my mind um but yeah that's just a thought that i had i don't know if you agree or disagree with that but it's always struck me as kind of odd yeah no i agree with that definitely i mean there there's a frequent criticism in you know not to bring this back to christopher nolan's entire (laughs) filmography (laughs) but like there is a frequent criticism with him that female characters are not very well written Mm. and i have sort of mixed feelings about that like i agree in certain instances in other instances i think well it's more that he's just not really his stories are not really concerned with gender dynamics and so the characters are a bit their gender just doesn't matter and he just happens to not cast women in roles unless their gender is somehow essential to that character which is a problem in and of itself but I do think that Maul there are issues with Maul as a character and I think part of it is the fact that we never actually meet the real Maul you know the big and I think this is why that storyline Cobb's catharsis when it comes to Maul that never fully works for me, even though the actual mission itself really works, is his big revelation is, oh, this person is not my wife. You know, my wife was better than this. She was more complex than this. She was um, much more of an interesting, complex human being. And this person is just this flattened projection that I have of her. And I, I can't really say how this the movie could have done this differently because I think it it works in the sense that it's supposed to fulfill, but it there is a, something a bit lacking because it's like yeah, of course <laughs> this person is. We've been seeing them as this flat projection the entire time. We're not seeing Cobb, you know, when he's going into his own dream state, which we see him do throughout the film. The idea is like he sneaks off to go and spend time with Maul. We're not seeing their interactions at those those times. We're only seeing their interactions as they're relating to Ariadne or some other character who's threatening that dynamic. And so we only ever see Maul in the context of her kind of projecting protecting her territory with Cobb. So we don't get a sense of anything that's more rounded or dimensional to their relationship. You know, I, we have that one line from Arthur where Ariadne asks her what the real mall was like. And he's like, she was lovely, which I think she is like a, a nice, beautiful, simple statement. But we don't see Because no one's like, know? that's all you need to know about her. Yeah. She was <laughs> no, I want more. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I love the way he delivers that. I like the kind of simplicity to it. You know, I, I can't f- sum up this person. All you need to know is that she was lovely. But. It, as an audience member, you know, only seeing this woman in the context of her acting like a horror villain, then you're like, yeah, it, it's very flattening to a, a character that could have had a lot more depth. Yeah. So I've got two more thoughts from this, I guess, phase of the movie. Mm-hmm. They're pretty brief. So one of them, I think, is just funny. So <laughs> maybe you won't find it funny, but I'll just say it real quick. I wrote down um, the quote from this sequence where like, because Ariadne, as much as the character is interesting, gotta admit, she's kind of nosy, right? Let yeah. this man process his own trauma and grief in his own time. It's not. Well, but also like, 
that, but also, and you know, this is not my thought. This is another podcast episode I listened to on this movie, pointing this out. Why does she not just go, if she's really concerned, which she should be, about Cobb's inability to process his trauma, wrecking the team and putting the, the Heisen, putting them all in danger. Why didn't she go to Arthur or go to Eames or go to any other person on the team and like express her concerns? <laughs> like she's very concerned about keeping his, his, problem is quiet when it's like yeah but other people are affected. but if it's like an actual risk yeah yeah anyway, anyway sorry, i continue. agree with you so i brought down the quote from the movie where she sneaks into his dreams and they're going through the elevators and all that stuff and and he's like this has nothing to do with you and she's like it has everything to do with me you asked me to share dreams with you and he says not those and then he proceeds to show her several of the dreams. <laughs> several of it's like he's just yeah. show dreams with you. Not these. Let me show you three more. It's like yeah. <laughs> like why? That doesn't make sense. And then he's walking her through all these really intimate moments that are very private. And he's like, here, let me just show you a few more, even though I said stop. Anyway, I thought that was funny. And then the other thing I wanted to note, so this is kind of, I've got a couple plot holes with this movie that I want to mention as they come up. This is the first one that kind of came up. It's not technically a plot hole, but it's like an inconsistency, I guess, in the writing. And I do think it's kind of a plot hole-ish. But Dom goes through this whole thing of expressing to Ariadne, you know, that, or maybe it's Arthur who kind of explains it to her. No one else can touch your totem because if they know how your totem works, then it defeats the purpose because now someone else can basically manipulate that to then manipulate your own understanding of reality, whatever, like all of that stuff, which I think is a really interesting concept. But then Dom ends up telling Ariadne how his totem works because he's explaining to her, oh yeah, this was Maul's totem and it was a truth that she had chosen to forget. And in a dream, she would drop the top and it would spin and spin and spin. He literally tells Ariadne how the totem works, which I guess there's that whole sequence in the movie where Arthur does say, oh, I guess you figured out how many, how much time Cobb spends doing things he says not to do. But I feel Come like on. the concept of the totem is so important, especially mm-hmm. for someone like Cobb, who has a very thin grasp on what reality is at this point. And the fact that he just tells Ariadne how the totem works I'm pretty sure that's not an okay thing to do. And I don't feel like Cobb as a character would do that. But no, I, anyway, I, it's just a complaint that I have. <laughs> no, it's a good complaint. Actually, I sort of agree and disagree because I think it probably is not a good thing to do, but I think it absolutely is something Cobb would do because just the fact that he's using Mal's totem as opposed to getting a totem of his own is an indication that his grasp on reality has already been weakened and that Ooh, he is, that's um, interesting. you know, why is he using Mal's, Mal's totem? Why doesn't he have a, have a totem of his own? I think there's a sense in which reality has already been blurred for him. And he is kind of refusing to own up to the extent to which he is allowing reality and dreams to become blurred. Okay, that's interesting. I, I'm here for it. Yeah, okay. All right, so... Um, so the, the heist begins. They go onto the uh, airplane, the long haul flight. They manage to drug Fisher and start the heist, which by the way, I, I always, it always kind of cracks me up, but 
the um when they when Cobb tricks Fisher into drinking the drugged water, Killian Murphy takes like the teensiest little sip of that water and then he is out. And I'm like, how strong was the drug in that water? If he had drunk the entire glass, would he have died? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Anyway. Also, Another funny thing that I always love in this movie is when they're talking about like, oh man, the flight, you'd have to buy out the whole cabin and the blah, blah, blah. And Saito's just like, I bought the airline. <laughs> and I was just like, uh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> this movie fun. does have some humor in it. It does have some humor in it. I it like does. It. I mean, I always love, I mean, it's such a small moment, but I always love the when Yusuf has done like a particularly good bit of driving to avoid the projections and he turns around like, see what I just did? And everyone's drunk. Everyone's out. <laughs> He's like, oh, right. It's also, just such a like, small moment. But. I was going to, I was going to bring this up later, but I feel like it'll just come up now. It's super brief comment, but I feel like Yusuf by far has the worst job out of everyone <laughs> in really this does. whole heist. Like, he doesn't get to do anything fun. Hold <laughs> the short straw. Everything depends on him. He's the one being shot at by a million yeah. different. It's just, Which, and, he, and it's like in other layers, they're getting shot at, right? But at least they have other people around to help. Yusuf's like, nope, it's just me by army. myself against the whole army. Saito's dying in the back seat. <laughs> you know, like the whole mission, me getting to the kick at the right time, making sure they have enough time. Yusuf's going to need some therapy after this. I know. <laughs> Which, by the way, you talk about, like, what happened to, you know, where has Tom Hardy been the last few years? Dilip Rao was in, um, he was in Avatar, and then he was in Inception, and I'm sure he's been working, but, like, where has he been? He's so great Who in this movie. Who was he in Avatar? I don't remember. Yeah, he's one of the scientists in Avatar. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. But anyway, justice for Dilip Rao, because he's great. I'm sure he's been in lots of stuff that I just haven't seen, but I feel like we need to appreciate him more. Um, okay, so they're in the dream. So in the first dream level, which is a city street, the team kidnaps Fisher, Eames impersonates his grandfather, Peter Browning, and he introduces the idea of an alternate will that... Fisher's father left that would break up the company. And Fisher's like, what? Why on earth would my father want to do that? The team, while they're trying to do this sort of fake kidnapping, they're attacked by Fisher's projections because it turns out that Fisher's mind has been militarized. He's gone through the training, uh, which they didn't expect. Saito is wounded. And so that puts a time crunch in the operation because Cobb reveals that, which he didn't tell them ahead of time, which is a problem, because of the sedative, if they die, they're not going to wake up the way they normally would in a dream, but instead they're going to be sent to limbo, which is unconstructed dream space, which who is very vague. Nothing is down there, except yeah. anything <laughs> left behind by someone who's been there before, which yes. in our case is just you. I feel like limbo is the, mo the, the one part of this movie that is the m least sort of explanation given the least sort of thought out it just sort of exists and you're like all right you oh. just got to accept it but you know what That's i've fine. got lots of plot holes for limbo we'll get to it later <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> all right um so the team gets into a van and they to go into the next dream layer and so while the rest of the heist is happening yusuf is continually driving them around and trying to avoid getting caught by the projections before the kick 
On the second level, they're in a hotel. Cobb plays a risky gambit by telling Fisher that they're dreaming and suggesting that he was kidnapped by Browning on the level above as a way to prevent Fisher from dissolving the company. So Fisher believes him, gets in on this. He convinces, Cobb convinces Fisher to go into a deeper dream layer in order to figure out what Browning is up to. And while they're under, in the hotel room, Arthur is then projecting, protecting them from the projections. And eventually when Yusuf is forced to start the kick early, everything, the entire hotel, there's no gravity, everyone's floating. And so Arthur has to kind of improvise this special elevator explosive maneuver to, to uh, give them a new kick. Then in the third layer, the team and Fisher infiltrate a snowy fortress. Fisher is shot by Mal before the inception can actually take place. Saito also dies of his wounds on the first level. To rescue them, Cobb and Ariadne have to go to Limbo, where they confront Mal. Cobb finally admits that his projection of Mal is inadequate, and he gives he gives her up. He says, you know, I'm not... Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, Ariadne shoots Mal, wakes up Fisher back on the third level, Fisher finally encounters the projection of his father, and he gets the emotional closure that he needed for their relationship. He discovers the you know, the idea is incepted in him that his father loves him and wants him to be his own man. Eames set off some explosions, initiate, which initiates the final kick, and brings all the characters, apart from Cobb and Saito, back to the surface. In Limbo, we've gone back to the opening scene. So Cobb washes up on a strange beach, and he finds an aged Saito, who's long since forgotten that he's living in a dream. Cobb reminds him of the need to return to reality. And then on the plane, everyone wakes up. The mission is over. Seemingly it has succeeded, and Saito makes a phone call. So we'll hold off on discussing that last scene. Why don't we talk about the, the heist altogether? Should you start or shall I? I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> Why don't you start? Because I've, I've got a few things, um, but I think you have more than me. Okay. Well, I will try and uh, go through this relatively quickly because everything that Geneva just read is like a whole hour and a half sequence. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, it's thrilling. I love every second of it, but it's definitely a fair chunk of time with lots of things going on. Yes. Um. Okay. Oh, speaking of which, one of the things I wrote down here, which Geneva also has mentioned, uh, but this is one of the fastest three-hour movies I've ever seen in my life. I've watched several movies where it's like, this is a good movie, but also I'm feeling how long it is. I love it and I'm enjoying it, but still, this feels so long. This movie does not feel long to me at all. So like, I wish that there was more of it. Um, Agreed. But... I was shocked. I had forgotten how long it was. I was shocked when I saw yeah. the runtime. I know. It's crazy. Um, yes. So I just wanted to point out, before I did say that the, the acting performances are all great, I do think that, there, that there's one that is extraordinarily weak, and it really bothers me. I'm like, why did they cast this person? That That's mean. I don't know. I just found the performance to be very weak. The man who plays Uncle Peter, I... Who is it? I um, Tom Berenger. Yeah, I find his performance to be incredibly weak. I just, I think the character is great, the concept of the character, and I don't even think the writing for him is that bad. I just think his performance feels very stale, um, and he's just almost reading from a phone book. I don't know. It, his performance just bothers me. 
because everyone else around him is so strong. And he's in a lot of scenes next to Cillian Murphy, who is going all out in this movie. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Cillian Murphy and Pete Postlethwaite, by the way, are my pick for best performances in the movie, in a movie of, like you said, pretty much universally excellent performances. Yeah, so good. Um, also, forgive me for saying Cillian Murphy instead of Killian, oh, yes. but, you know, mistake. <laughs> Our Irish isn't listeners that like will uh, going back to isn't, isn't that like back going back to what I said in the beginning? If it's not a normal American name, <laughs> then two people pronounce it differently. <laughs> well, I just put my foot in my mouth. Here we go. It's all good. It's all good. Safe space. <laughs> Speaking of Killian Murphy, I did want to say that I found that his Robert Fisher character as being this pretty rich boy who's all of a sudden thrown into the scenario and he's like, oh yeah, I'm eager to help out and be a tough guy and enter this mission. He's so eager to jump in and he takes it so seriously. He's like, okay, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And everyone else is super educated and they know what's up. And then here's this guy who's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sounds good. He's just so eager to help out. And I think it's really cute. I like that a lot. Um, okay, so I just, I think I'll, this is another kind of complaint that I have. Um, the sequence where they're on the third level and they're in the snow and everything, and then they realize, okay, we missed the first kick. We have to move faster. And then Cobb asks Ariadne, is there another way to cut through the maze to (laughs) get to wherever? And she's like, I don't think I should tell you. And he's like, we don't have time for this, blah, blah, blah. She could have walked five feet away and talked quieter so that Bob wouldn't hear, which would mean that Maul wouldn't have shown up and shot Fisher, like all these, I'm like, it makes no sense that she's like, I'll stand right next to you and scream into the walkie. If she knows the stakes that are at place, okay, clearly I have to share this information, but also Maul is a threat and blah, blah, blah. I feel like Ariadne is smart enough to be like, hey, take your headphones out. I'll walk over here and tell them. And then it moves forward. That bothered me too. And it's worse than that because she's like, I don't think I should tell you. And he's like, we don't have time for this. Tell me. She does. And then he's like, great, tell them. And it's like, no, no, no. You should have just said, tell them. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't doesn't make sense. sense. It's entirely Cobb's fault. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yes um yeah i agree um okay and then this is oh i guess the rest of my comments are pretty quick so yeah i think the fact that like (laughs) just the concept that robert fisher has no idea of what's going on this whole time everyone else is like feeling this urgency of if we don't accomplish this mission then all of this stuff's gonna happen and blah 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 and then fisher's just like yeah they're trying to get a code to break into my father's safe and they're being mean to my godfather. It's like, okay, it's just, I just think that concept is really funny to me that he's just in a totally different understanding of what's going on for this entire mm-hmm. sequence of the, of the movie. I know, again, well, this is why I think that his storyline is so fascinating because it's like, it's not a large chunk of the movie. He's not in the movie that much, but you can easily sort of imagine reframing the movie around him. And I mean, he never ultimately learns that what happened you know he never ultimately learns that he was part of this larger scheme but like this is just this absolutely fundamental day for him where he's discovering all these new things about himself and he's rethinking his entire relationship with his father and it's just like kind of this quiet emotional breakdown and rediscovery that's going on 
in the midst of this larger heist where they're really, really high stakes. Yeah. I just feel like his perspective, I mean, I think he's integral to the story and he's really important. And I do like how his arc kind of mirrors Cobb's in certain ways, but there are certain things that are just funny to me, like the end (laughs) sequence when they're like gathering their luggage. Can you imagine having this whole elaborate dream with everyone that's in your section of the plane that you've maybe talked to for two seconds and then you see all of them and they were just in a dream that changed your life you it changed your understanding of your father of the purpose of your life what you're doing going forward with and then like you just see them in the airport and it's like that's just like it's very it's very like (laughs) you can imagine it being very like the end of um wizard of oz where it's like i had this dream and you were there and you were there and you were there yeah yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. The concept of Arthur's fight scene is one of the most innovative, impressive things. And no matter how many behind the scenes things that I watch, I still find it to be flabbergasting that they pulled this off and mm-hmm. made it look the way that it did. It blew me away in the theater. It still blows me away now. The first time I saw it, I was absolutely enthralled. Absolutely stunning. And techniques that have existed for 50 years, you know, like mm-hmm. e- everyone who has not already, I'm, you know, probably a lot of people have heard of this, but if you've not, go look up Royal Wedding, Fred Astaire Dance, where Fred Astaire dances on the walls and ceilings. Like it's the same techniques that were used for that, that are used for this sequence, but they're just executed so beautifully. And the lighting and the cinematography and the use of camera angles and so good it's just so it looks like nothing you've ever seen before it holds up so well and yeah it's incredible it's absolutely iconic the physicality too joseph wouldn't love it like who would have thought watching him in 500 days of summer the year before like that he could be a convincing action star but he does great yep yeah. And then, um, yeah. So two other things we already kind of touched on this Hans Zimmer's score. I feel like in the first half of the movie, it's kind of a little bit as, as subtle as Hans Zimmer can be, but as far as Hans Zimmer goes, the first half of the movie before the mission starts, his score is kind of more subtle in the background, whatever. But then once the mission starts the moments where it builds and picks up pace and has the ticking of the, it's just this movie without this score is not the same movie Mm -hmm. at all. And I think, I just think it needs to be acknowledged to the upteenth degree. (laughs) Let's all bow down to Hans Zimmer because without his score, this movie would not have been as good. I think that it would have been 30% less than what it is. Maybe even more than 30%. It's like it's it joins the sort of ranks of, you know, like a, a Jaws or a Star Wars where the score is so integral to your emotional experience of the movie. You know, you can't imagine mm-hmm. the movie without imagining the sounds that are shaping your experience of it. Yes. Yep. Um, and then one thing that I love is the production design in the, the room where Fisher finally comes in and sees his father the big black tiles. Yeah, sort of 2001-esque, but black. Yeah. Yeah. It's so shiny, so clean, so simple, and yet it communicates so much about the emotion of their relationship and the tension of the scene and the suspense. It's just, 
even the sound design when that door opens it's like it's so oh i just love the design of that because that's kind of the whole movie is hedging on this one moment right and so i think it's so interesting how everything kind of goes silent and it's black and just pretty much empty except for the essential things that have to be here and the conversation they have between each other Mm-hmm. The visuals we've seen before of the hospital bed and the nightstand, which, by the way, watching rewatching this last night, um, I was reminded of something that I was I was telling you about my experience of watching the movie Nope, which is mm-hmm. I love when a director is able to throughout a film seed in visual ideas or line bits of dialogue or sounds or things like that, and give them a kind of ability to serve as a vocabulary. And then by the end, he's able to just, you know, put them back up onto the screen, maybe in a different context, maybe a little looking a little bit different, but the, the, the watcher is immediately able to tell what that means. They're immediately able to decode it. And there are so many things in this movie in Inception that are seeded throughout and come up again. You know, there's that, that view of the children, which is you know, shown multiple times in many different contexts. There are things like, you know, stepping on a wine glass and the kind of ringing sound it makes, which is used to kind of show, you know, the Mal or uh, Cobb's past kind of bleeding in. There's the visual of the the wind ruffling the curtains. Um, and one of the things that then makes the the Fisher Fisher's catharsis scene work so well is that visual of the um, the pinwheel that gets pulled out of the, and that's just used as this immediate shorthand for this idea that his, his father actually loves him and that his relationship with his father is different than, than the one that he had in his head. And it's just such an elegant, elegant way of kind of visually communicating in this one very quick way. And, you know, that together working with the performances then just gives you everything that you need, you know, and it, allows you to just get these ideas. There are very few lines of dialogue spoken, but you just understand everything about what just happened. And I love the fact that he pulls the pinwheel out of the safe. He doesn't pull out the photo of him as a kid with the pinwheel. He pulls out the pinwheel, which is basically him recreating this memory that he had as a kid that his father was not present for, but it's happening now as an adult, granted in a dream, but it's like he's recreating this memory that he always wanted his dad to be there for. Yeah, and it's like he's going he like, to childhood, going back to that moment when he, right. he felt like he could be with his father. Yeah, and I feel like that's a very intentional decision because he could have just taken out the photo because we've seen that photo a dozen times in the movie. But it's like, no, this moment is different because he's not reflecting and looking at an old memory. He's recreating it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is super cool. Yeah, yeah. That's so beautifully put. I love that. Well, thank you. Um. (laughs) (laughs) There was one other thing from this section that I wanted to bring up, which I found really interesting on this rewatch that I'd never really noticed before is, and I mean, this kind of ties back into what we were talking about, about how Christopher Nolan's movies are so kind of, there's this sort of sterile intellectual quality to them and to the way that you engage with them, which I'm not saying as a negative i actually really really connect with that but i find it so interesting throughout this movie the the visual language of like big business and how much of this movie takes place in you know hotel rooms or in hallways or like you know a 
a really sterile bar where like a businessman might go and have a drink with a colleague or, you know, just this idea of like corporate sort of attire that everyone is wearing. Um, Saito as, you know, he's he's a businessman, he's a Japanese man. And there's that sort of melding between his kind of the, the visual elements of his culture with the, the business world is really interesting. And I mean, just the, the context of the movie, the idea that the whole reason that this plot is able to happen is because of these two huge corporate interests battling with each other, this power struggle that enables this then personal story for Cobb to happen. But then the business interests are kept very vague. And so there is that question of like, you know, this sort of dreamlike quality, to what extent is this actually happening and this is just sort of Cobb justifying what's going on with him emotionally, or is this actually what is happening? And, you know, Cobb and all these other people are kind of at the whims of these huge corporate interests. I don't know. I just found that sort of idea to set this plot, which is, you know, an action movie set in dreams. Like you could set that anywhere. You could set it in all sorts of surreal landscapes, but it's set within this sort of um, kind of cold corporate visual language I don't know. I, I was very struck by that. And then too, the the third level then is this is kind of the most adventurous in the setting because it's the snowy fortress and it kind of it brings up like a lot of like James Bond heists. You know, that's kind of a everyone on skis trying to infiltrate a forest is um, a um, like a, an action. I, sequence that's used a lot in the James Bond movies, which I was very curious about the decision to do that. I mean, it kind of, I feel like for me, it kind of plays into the idea of like that father-son relationship, because I feel like James Bond is very much a sort of, you know, not not a dad franchise and that only dads enjoy it, because I've enjoyed some James Bond movies, but like that's, you know, it's like a lot of fathers and sons might watch a James Bond movie together and enjoy that. And so, you know, it's never stated why they they choose that, but is that one of the reasons because that's kind of an association with Fisher and his relationship with his father. I don't know. I'm just kind of speculating because I find it very interesting that they do something a bit more outdoorsy and um, adventurous for that third level and not for the others. Thoughts? Yeah. I mean, there's probably some deep thematic meaning as to why that third layer is more open and cold and adventurous I don't, I can't really think of what it is off the top of my head, <laughs> but, but I think that there probably is something very intentional there um, because especially even if Christopher Nolan wasn't necessarily thinking about the setting in his writing all that much, although he probably, well, no, he definitely was, but even just thinking about all the meetings that he had with the production designer and how they specifically chose to have certain things, there definitely is intentionality there, I'm sure. I would just have to think about it more. And I've never thought about it that way. So that's thank you for pointing that out, because that's a new yeah. a new thing for this movie that I'll have to think about. Yeah, it only just struck me on this last viewing. I was like, why why did they choose this of all settings? Like and it works so well with what the movie is and what it's doing and the themes that it has, like the visual the whole in the entire visual language of this movie just is so consistent and i think that's part of why it works but i was just fascinated about how those decisions were made and what they mean okay all right so the last scene of the movie cobb successfully enters the united states he goes through customs michael gaston the character actor who i love is there at the um, immigration desk to welcome him into the, the country. He gets to his house and he sets his totem spinning. 
Then he turns away from it. He sees his kids and he runs to, to join them. And then the camera focuses in on the, the top and it wobbles a little, but the, we cut away before it falls. So there's that question of whether or not Cobb is actually back in the real world or whether he is still dreaming. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Bomb. <laughs> yeah, bomb. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first of all, I just want to say that I feel like I'm kind of the odd person out when it comes to the ending of this movie, because I remember when I first watched it, even walking out of the theater, so many people were talking about like, oh my gosh, the spinning top at the end. We didn't get to see it fall. So was it a dream or was it not? And in my mind, I've never cared about that at the end. I've never finished this movie and been like, oh, I really wonder if he's dreaming or if it's the real world. Because I'm kind of like, does it really matter? Because he's chosen this to be his reality anyway. So whether the top falls or not, it is reality because he's chosen it to be. And so many people, they talked about that so much. And that was what they held on to from this movie. And for me... There are so many more things that I took away from this movie than is the top going to fall or is it not? Mm. So I don't know if that's just unique to me, but I never really cared about that as much yeah. as an ending. It's funny. I have come to care about it more weirdly. Like when I first saw it, I was with you. I was like, you know, it's a fun open-ended question, question but that's not, you know, I, I don't really care too much about it. But I feel like as I've reevaluated it more as I get older it becomes the question becomes more important to me because I feel like a lot of the movie is the um, the question of you know as I was saying before whether you construct your own reality versus living in the reality as it is as kind of an intentional choice and the fact that all of Cobb's trauma comes from the fact that his wife refused to accept reality as it was and was determined to construct her own reality. And that led to her downfall that led to, you know, in incredible amount of pain for Cobb. And then throughout the film, he's kind of at the end of the film, he's basically has a chance to play it again in him rescuing Saito from limbo. Like Saito is in a place where Maul was, um, where he has now been in limbo for decades and has completely forgotten about the existence of reality and so Cobb gets a chance to do it all over and to draw him back into the real world and so for me then it it does the question does become a little bit more important um to your ultimate takeaway of the movie because if you know all of that happens and yet at the same time Cobb is ignoring his own reality and is choosing to live in something else that you know, I feel like that says something or that that changes your ultimate takeaway of the movie, or at least it says it's very revealing about the character of Cobb and how he's processed what he's just gone through. I see. I see what you're saying. And I do think that that's interesting and really important to the story. I just feel like the top spinning at the end is not necessarily. I don't know. I feel like if he is in a dream, I feel like that's communicated by the fact that his kids, when he sees them, look exactly the same as they did in the memory that he had. I feel like the answer to that question comes from the kids more than it does from the top. Because if the top falls, what, like we've already used the totem throughout the entire movie, which in every single other scene, it's fallen. And we're still in that same... 
maybe we're not, I don't know. But for me, the top does not, to me, every time I watch it, I'm like, of course the top is going to fall because this is this, even if he is dreaming, he's still in the same world that he's been in throughout the entire other parts of the movie. And in all of those other parts, it did fall. So for me, the intrigue of is he dreaming it or is he not comes from the fact that the kids look the same age. And if this is a dream, then what does that mean about the totem and how it's fallen throughout the entire movie prior to this? Is the totem broken or I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I that just, makes sense. So like the totem actually wouldn't function, wouldn't work the way it's supposed to because everything that we've seen before is a dream and therefore the totem would operate according to dream rules. Yeah, so I just think the totem itself is not the interesting way to approach that question. But that's just my own personal opinion. I, yeah, if yeah. someone disagrees with me, that's fine. It's just for me, ending on the totem is not. I remember when the movie ended and the totem was there and then it went to black. Everyone was like, oh, what? It ended there? <laughs> like, we want to know if the top fell. And I'm like... No, it's fine. The top's gonna fall, guys. It's okay. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Like, the top is not the interesting part here, but okay. So. Yeah, no, that that makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay, so I know I keep saying I'm gonna rapid fire do things, but I am going to literally just rapid fire go through all these plot holes one by one. And then if we want to talk about them, we can, or we don't have to. Okay. Um, But (laughs) the first one is, I don't understand the stakes of limbo. If you can literally just kill yourself and come back to reality, then who cares? Yeah, that's a good one. If you're already very aware going into limbo that your mind is going to go to mush if you stay there, then why would you not just kill yourself once you immediately get into limbo before you lose your mind? That does not make sense to me. I don't get it. I think that's a huge plot hole. Um, (laughs) So that's one. Um... Okay, so they all, after the kicks all sync up and they all rise up to the first level, how do they get out of the first level? (laughs) Because there's no kick that is happening on the plane to bring them out of the first level. And so if it is the argument of, oh, we have to go through the mission and do it as quickly as possible because if we stay on this level a long time, then his personal army is going to kill us. So what do you do once you all get back here? And then if if it's still waited out because there's no way to get you out of the first level, <laughs> then why don't you all just wait it out instead right. of going through the mission? Like, well, it I've seen it. It doesn't I've make seen, sense. I've seen it pointed out, and I don't remember where I saw this, but they say that the first level is like a week long. But what we see in the movie could not be more than like six hours at the absolute maximum. So does that mean that they wake up on the plane and it's been like half an hour into a 10 hour flight and they're all just like sitting and staring at each other for the next like nine and a half hours? Oh, God. yeah, I mean, potentially. Yeah. But also, how do they get out of the first level? They never talk about that. If they're going to wait it out, then why would they have gone through the mission? They they're going to have to wait it out regardless. Right. It just doesn't. Massive plot hole. It does not make sense. Okay. Maybe they all Another just chill one. on the first level for But that, But week. that doesn't... They literally explicitly stated in the beginning, we can't just sit here and wait for 10 days because we'll be killed by then. That's why we have to do the mission. They established <laughs> that as a plot point, but then they don't explain... Like, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make okay. sense. Okay. Here's another one. 
I, I don't understand why Saito is a million years old when Cobb gets to him in limbo because Cobb went into limbo before Saito did. Or like, only very shortly afterward. It doesn't matter though, because Ariadne, Fisher, and Cobb all went into limbo before Saito died. I have wondered. So this if well. you're going through this concept of like, oh, limbo time is longer, whatever, sure, that's fine. But even if that's the case, Cobb should be a million years old and Saito <laughs> should be the young one. Yeah. That does not make sense. It doesn't. So that's not necessarily a plot hole. The whole movie doesn't fall apart because of that, but it's a it's a point that annoys me. I, I always um, wonder about these things like does Christopher Nolan have some elaborate explanation in his mind? And he was just like, nah, too much. I'm just gonna. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's all my plot holes. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, I mean, like we said before, there are definitely things that you can pick apart about this movie. Like there's a lot of logic gaps. There are a lot of leaps. There are a lot of things that characters do that don't make sense. And I think, again, the the miracle of this movie is like there are it a lot of weaknesses matter. in the writing and yet somehow it does work you know it's fun it's exciting it's emotionally engaging um and i think again there is that sort of plausible deniability of the dream context where you can just be like yeah but it's a dream <laughs> so you know of course ariadne doesn't have much of a character because she's just a projection so yeah so that's all i got yeah that's that's pretty much all i've got too um I ha I pulled a couple of critics' quotes about this movie, which I don't really want to go into in depth because I feel like we really, um, you know, we've we've talked about a lot and we do need to wrap this up. But I will just say um, this movie was very positively received when it first came out. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it was a big hit, but it was also very critically well received. Uh, on Metacritic, it's currently at a 74. Rotten Tomatoes has it 87% fresh. I found this quote from um, a 10-year retrospective by this writer, A.J. Romano, on Vox, which I thought was really a really good summary of how I feel about Inception. I loved this one. Yeah. So Romano writes, To me, Inception is a minor miracle, a movie built fundamentally on nonsense, with a terrible script and enough plot holes to be a permanent tease, yet one that satisfies on every conceivable level. No matter how frustrating I find Cobb to be as a character, no matter how weak and implausible I find the writing, every time I watch Inception, by the time he hits the airport and Zimmer's gorgeous time kicks in on the soundtrack, I'm rooting for him, holding my breath every step, wanting him to get his happy ending despite everything. Most of Inception's plot may be built on nonsense, but a movie that can make you care about all that nonsense and bullshit is the essence of movie making, a Hollywood dream within a Hollywood dream. And I thought that just, yeah. I mean, I... I would not say it's a terrible script because as, as I said before, I think, you know, there's weaknesses in the dialogue and in some of the um, specific leaks to the logic, I think it's still an excellently structured um, script, but I, yeah, I think Romano sums it up. Well, you've, despite those weaknesses, it really is a, a movie that brings you along with it and allows you to engage with it, you know, on the levels of what it's trying to do. Yeah. I totally agree with you and with the review as well. And just to throw this out there, uh, Jeeva and I both have a love-hate relationship with the Oscars, but just to keep it mm -hmm. fun, um, this film at the Oscars, it won best, best Cinematography, Sound Mixing, Sound Editing, and Visual Effects. 
and it was nominated for Best Motion, Best Motion Picture, Best Original Screenplay, Original Score, and Art Direction. So I would agree with all of those wins and all of those nominations, actually. Because um, even though, like Geneva just said, the screenplay can be a little clunky at times, I think the way that he weaves together all of these incredibly intricate ideas is just incredibly, incredibly impressive. What an accomplishment. Um, and the production design, I haven't really talked too much about it, but I definitely am very struck by the production design in this movie. I think that it is top notch. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. So, Geneva, why did you pick this movie to start with? <laughs> um, well, like I said at the beginning, you know, it's a movie that we both have a history with and care with, care about deeply. And I think it's just, you know, in terms of what moves me about this movie, like I said, I feel like I, I love the way that this movie really engages my mind. You know, it's not a movie, and most of Christopher Nolan's movies in general, they're not ones that will make me sort of sob or you know they're they're not ones that are sort of emotionally devastating but they are ones that they engage me and they get me really thinking about them and they get me really invested in what's going on I care about the characters even if the characters are you know there are weaknesses in the writing but the um you know the the casting and the performances that he's able to bring out of his actors um often do a lot to make up for it and it's just a movie that is just, it's so original, it's so fun, it's so moving, you know, it's its really endured. You know, this movie holds, it was such a hit at a time, but it really holds up. Um, and I think its it's had a really profound impact on big blockbuster, um, you know, action filmmaking in the last 10 years, but at the same time, it's a movie that no one's really been able to replicate. And I don't think anyone could really replicate it. I mean, you know, Tenant was sort of trying to do similar things, I think far, far less successfully. <laughs> um, I, I don't see a movie like this really coming along again, um, but it has this really wonderfully universal appeal and timelessness to it that I think is just very special. I think the moment that really, really hits me the hardest is just the the ending scene as Cobb is, the mission has been completed and Cobb is walking through the airport. And a lot of that is Hans Zimmer's amazing score. I meant to look up what track is the the title of the track that plays during this and I completely forgot, but whatever track that's playing is I, so I think beautiful. it's I think it's time. Is it time? Okay, yeah. I think it might be time. Okay, yeah. It is so beautiful. It's just such a great sort of, it makes everything feel very epic and it's very evocative. Um, yeah. But then to a, at the same time, again, the moment between Fisher and his father where that emotional catharsis, that's the one that probably engages me the most on, on sort of a emotional level. Like that's the quieter sort of human moment that really engages me. Whereas the ending scene is the one that just sort of, as a moviegoer, it just grabs me and, you know, it, it sends me out, like, excited and hopeful and just absolutely thrilled with the, the experience. That's awesome. I just looked it up. It is time, by the way. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, what what's the moment that, that moves you the most? I think when I think about the moment in this movie that did it for me, 
I think when I first watched the movie, I think there's two moments. There's the one when the the mission actually starts because I didn't realize that the whole first hour and a half is set up. I was like, I thought that we were already in the movie, not in the intro to, the, you know, and then all of a sudden we cut after they go to sleep, we cut and we're in the mission now in the first layer of the dream world. And it starts with a blah. I think that's when I was like, whoa, this movie is only just beginning. And I didn't know that it would get any better. And I'm so excited for what's coming next. So that's the first moment that I think of. And then the other one is the first time we had the shot of the van falling. When Cobb's character goes, I think I think someone asks, it might be Eames, who's like, what second kick? And then Cobb is like, when the van hits the water and then it cuts to the van falling. And like, that was when my heart rate picked up. I don't even know, triple times the pace. I don't even know. But those are the two moments that I remember that really, really did it for me the first time I watched this movie. So yeah, even though Geneva did choose this movie for us this week, like I said in the beginning, this was also on my list to discuss. So I would have put it out there eventually if she hadn't, because this is a movie that impacted both of us a lot. Um, but next week, we will be discussing a movie that was on my list, but was not on Geneva's which is the amazing, wonderful film by one of the best comedy groups of all time. It is the one and only Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I'm pretty excited about it. And uh, hope you guys will stick around. Yeah, super excited. I, I've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I've not seen it for a very long time. Um, I don't remember very well. So super excited to watch it again. <laughs> ah, so excited. It's going to be great. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.